Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. It is in your bulletin. I'll read that in just a few moments. As I was reading the chapter this week for study, it made me wonder what some of the latest research is on people's viewpoints of Christianity in America. It's been a while since we talked about this. There are some interesting trends happening right now that we should know about because we are people who profess Christ. We are his witnesses in the world. And so for this particular discussion, I turn to the Cultural Research Center with Dr. George Barna. For 2020, in collaboration with Arizona Christian University, here are some findings from what they call the American Worldview Inventory. First, a plurality of adults, 48%, believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things, they will earn a place in heaven. Now, that's not that surprising for the general population. What is surprising, though, is that they found 52% of Christians said that they also accept a works-based orient belief of God's favor in salvation. They also found that 44% of people said that Jesus is fully God and fully human, and also that he sinned while he was on earth. Speaking of sin, even though 70% of people in America claim to be Christian, only slightly half of them say that they consciously and consistently try to avoid sinning because they know that it offends God. Only a third of adults, 35%, continue to embrace the biblical view that salvation is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, you guys, this is exactly what we've been talking about in Hebrews. How are we saved? Through the blood of Christ. The data showed also an inconsistency between what people say about themselves and also what they actually believe. This has actually been true for a while. So while 51% of American adults say that they have a biblical worldview, only 6% of them actually say that they live that out. So they tested ideas like reincarnation and sin and practical matters such as lying, pornography, cheating, and the nature of God. 59% of people said that the Bible is not the authoritative and true Word of God. Now, why does all of this matter? Well, one reason, and this is all me, by the way. I didn't read any Barna stuff. This is all me. These are all my thoughts. (laughs) So take them for what you will and maybe use them as fodder for yourself later. One reason is because we make a lot of assumptions about what people actually believe thinking that a majority of people know what the Bible says because we live in America. In other words, when we consider non-Christians, we think that they have made a fully informed decision about scripture, that they know what it says, and they have rejected God on that basis. But there is a true lack of biblical literacy today, even in the church. And then I think Well, maybe because we're familiar with the gospel and we think that the world is inundated with it, that we don't have to say obvious things like Jesus was fully human, he was fully divine, and he never sinned. Maybe because believers aren't really sharing the gospel as much anymore, which is also true. That has been shown for a while now. Maybe because we're doing that less that we have less incentive 
to be ready in and out of season, to stay sharp about our own theology so that we can defend the faith. I would also guess, as Scott has alluded to, that because we are in a very divided nation, and those rifts are keenly felt in the church, that we are backing away from any conversation that might feel like conflict. Now, not only is this sad, this is going to have generational ramifications for years to come. Because if we can't talk about, as Christians, theology and social issues and race and masks and politics and biblical interpretation and who Jesus was and vaccines and economics and the arts and anything else in a healthy, loving, authentic way, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? God has given us a mandate that we have to speak the truth. It doesn't do much good also to have conversations with people who think exactly like we do. That's called an echo chamber. So as members of the body, we are called by the Lord in Isaiah to reason, to reason together, to take that out into the world and have conversations. In our passage today, there is a great deal of repetition from we we have been studying in these last few weeks. In this final argument about the new covenant and the old, the writer wants to make sure that we know what is true. The discussion about Jesus and the high priest, being the high priest and his greatness as the ultimate sacrifice, as in contrast to the old covenant, is ending on a high note here. This has been such a rich portion of the book. And I would offer that the author of this sermon that we call the book of Hebrews understands how vital it is to drive home a point again and again because we as humans are not only apt to forget, we are highly susceptible to incorporating ideas around us into our hearts and minds from our culture that is contrary to what the Bible teaches. The writer is not only trying to convince a group of people not to return to a former way of religion and life through the old covenant, they are repeating what is necessary for the church to remember, and today we need to listen. So this is the word of the Lord from Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, see, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. 
and it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. He also adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let us pray. Father, Son, Spirit, on this Sunday when we celebrate the gift of the life you give us, May you teach us the truth and the grace we need to hear. Amen. So as I said, this passage concludes a major doctrinal section of the book where the writer reiterates a summary of how inadequate the old covenant is supposed to be compared to the new one Jesus came to bring. We've gone over this material before. And so as I talk about three ideas found here, I invite you to examine how it is that you have incorporated these truths into your lives. Not just that we know the truth of what is being said, but that we have embraced them for who we are as Christ's followers. The first idea that we see here is about how the forgiveness of Christ was accomplished once and forever. Remember that the author has talked a few times about the tabernacle being a sketch and a shadow of the one in the heavenly realms. Here, they say that the law is a shadow of the good things that we have in Christ. So if you think about a car on a sunny day and you think about how sometimes there's a perfect shadow of that car next to it, you think about how impossible it would be to say, get into Uh, to tell somebody, get into the shadow that you see projected on the ground and drive away. See, the shadow is only an outline of something real. There's no actual substance of its own. And the writer is saying that the law was not the true form of ultimately what came through Christ. Now, both are affected by God. God always had a plan for a second covenant, Because the first one wasn't quite enough to bring full healing or spiritual maturity or completion to those who sought him in that time. The writer makes it clear, the sacrifice, which continually had to be made, was impossible to take away sins. Last week, we examined how the blood of Christ is the only way that we we come to God. And we talked about how it isn't about either love or the blood, but it's both. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son as sacrifice. This is the only way we're saved, not by good works, or because God loves us. We are only washed and cleansed by the blood. Now these words remind us of the insufficiency of everything except for Jesus for salvation. But it also makes us pay attention to the futility of the first covenant, Year after year, day after day, sacrifices were made on behalf of God's people. 
but it wasn't enough to bring real change because no amount of animal sacrifice could offer true transformation. Listen to this really good quote from New Testament scholar Dr. George Guthrie. Every offering people brought testified to the inadequacy of the previous offering and reminded the worshiper that another similar offering was going to have to follow. Imagine how discouraging that could have been. A person could never truly feel cleansed or very close to God. So here is what I invite you to think about today. Every person born on earth has to grapple what it is that we do with sin. What is it that we do with the sin that infects our souls, that causes brokenness and violence and terror all around us? We all have to acknowledge that we are powerless against evil on our own. We have a problem even when we do the right things that God asks us to do because rituals don't make us right with God. Only Jesus has dealt with the problem of sin at its root. His act on the cross was the final reckoning with sin and how we are made right with God for eternity. That's why it's absolutely necessary that we keep telling others the truth of Christ, that we keep remembering that this is the core of our faith, that Jesus could not have sinned while he was on earth because if he did, that makes this whole deal null and void. His death is necessary for full forgiveness. It's by his stripes we are healed. It's by his wounds that we are freed from the bondage of sin and control and injustice and sorrow. When we say yes to Christ's death in our place, God chooses to forget our sins. He chooses to not remember them anymore. What a gift that is. Praise be to the Lord. Let's move on to another idea. God doesn't want sacrifice, the author is telling us, as much as he wants obedience. Now, the writer does an interesting thing here. They, they quote Psalm 40 as if Jesus is speaking it, which is not recorded anywhere. Jesus could have done it. We don't have that recording. They have an unusual pattern of quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So if you look up Psalm 40, the words are going to be a little bit different. But when we think about this idea of how God cares about obedience more than sacrifice, we are also reminded that this truth was found in other passages. In 1 Samuel, it says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Psalm 51 says, God, you have no delight in sacrifice. Create in me a clean heart. In Hosea 6, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. We could go on with Isaiah and Micah, but I think you get the drift. On one hand, we completely understand this. God doesn't want just a forgiveness transaction like we talked about a few weeks ago. The sacrificial system, like other repetitive religious practices, can be manipulated and used to human advantage. Every offering was meant to be given in honor to God in great sorrow for how the person fell short. But think about the multitudes of people who thought they were being obedient. They were bringing sacrifices for their sins and for their mistakes, for their families, for the good they neglected to do. 
And even if the blood of bulls and goats didn't make them experience the full cleansing, were they not doing what was asked of them? This is what, they the, what the Lord commanded. How did they miss that the Lord wanted them to engage their souls fully with him as well? Well, we ask ourselves the same question, don't we? It's so much easier to come to church than to be kind to people in our lives sometimes. Right? It's so easier to come instead of totally judging and gossiping about people that we don't like. We might prefer to give money or volunteer time rather than spend an hour praying to the Lord. Some of us would rather put Bible verses on our car or clothes or social media pages. Nothing wrong with that. But we'd rather do that than wrestle with how to navigate one painful societal reality that we are faced with. You see, whenever the outward motions of our faith become our faith, we have to remember these scriptures that we have been reading that reminds us that God cares about us and us listening to his will more than anything we do for him. In order to know God's will, that means we have to engage with him. He's alive, he's living, he's holy, he's active, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. You see, humans by nature want to figure out what's required of them so they can either exactly do it or they can figure out how to get around doing it. This is why we find it easier to live in the external. This is why there's a disconnect between people saying they have a biblical worldview and actually what they do in life. It's easier just dealing with the external re responsibilities of religion dealing with a God and just what he requires than paying attention actually to him and his will. Our last idea here is about how the Holy Spirit confirms what Jesus has done in the new covenant. We're so grateful for Pastor Helen's brief teaching last week on Pentecost Sunday. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back to the recording of the live stream and watch it. In five minutes, she nailed it. She encapsulated beautifully the work of the Spirit. We focused our readings for Pentecost on John 14, where Jesus assures the believers that even though he is going to leave, an advocate is going to come and be with them forever. And the main role of the spirit of truth, according to the scripture in Hebrews, is to teach us everything and remind us what the Lord has said. Why? Because we're people who forget. <laughs> because we are easily influenced by a culture around us that is hostile to God. So here the writer is reminding the church how the spirit is a constant witness of how the law is now in our hearts. Verse 15 says the spirit testifies to us. The new covenant isn't about pleasing a distant God, but living in closeness with him because the dwelling place of the Lord is now the tabernacle of our hearts. So not only does the Spirit confirm the work of Jesus to us, he is with us moving forward into the future. We have confidence and assurance and peace and discernment and transformation. Christ sacrifices once for all, and the Spirit's work is to help us live out the new life that we have been given. This is sanctifying work, the author says. 
meaning that we are changed from the inside out, meaning how we understand this is that we are growing in love for God and our neighbor because the Christian life isn't about being perfect and flawless. That leads to pride and discouragement. It's about how our faith works outwardly through love because the spirit dwells within us. One resource I read this week encouraged us to take a moment again in the throne room of heaven. We see this alluded to again in verse 12. The writer of Hebrews loves to take us into the throne room of God. After Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So the commentator said this, before we rush out of there, let's just take a moment and sit here in the throne room of God, imagining, inviting to remember again the heavenly realms where everyone is welcome because they are fully known and completely loved, that there is holy ground here, that there is absolute peace and forgiveness and goodness, that there is tremendous majesty and praise and glory and power and life from the Savior who does not need to continually offer sacrifices. He did the work and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and we honor him. It's done forever. And we honor him saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is he. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.